0: I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to First Samuel. We'll be looking at chapter four of First Samuel. It's the ninth book or so in the Old Testament. It's after Joshua and Judges before you get to. Uh, first and second Kings, there should be a pew Bible nearby if you don't have one uh, with you. First Samuel chapter four, as we're turning there, I'll remind us that in the uh, chapters one through three, we have looked at this dynamic of God raising up by his sovereign power. This one Samuel, who would be a sort of judge and prophet for the people of God. And simultaneously that God is bringing down uh, those false spiritual leaders, Eli, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, Uh, We saw the first week how God sovereignly blessed Hannah with even being able to give birth to Samuel. And then through that plan and his working out, enabled for Samuel to be among and with Eli in a sort of apprenticeship to become this last judge, first prophet, you might say, of the of the people of God. We saw in the second week of our time together uh, the reverse of that. We saw God bringing down Hophni and Phineas, who were abusing their leadership spiritually instead of using it for God's glory. And we reminded of the preciousness of worship and of really honoring and reverencing God in our in our worship and how we approach him, and especially the leaders of God's people uh, recognizing that last week we saw. Uh, with with the passage about Samuel, that he was raised up. God called him to be a prophet and he heard God's voice. And the main message of that really was the fact that God was going to bless his people by instead of the word of God being rare in their land, as it says at the beginning of chapter three, that it would become uh, spread abroad through through this prophet Samuel in particular. So we we saw that uh, leading up to today. Uh, today, things transition a little bit. There's a there's a, 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 an adjustment in roles. The actors are, st- are changing up behind stage, if you will. And, and what we see now is coming on to stage a sort of unusual actor. We're going to get to Saul. We're going to get to David later. And we'll even come back to Samuel a bit. But now for the next uh, three chapters or so, the, the, the new actor is sort of an unlikely one. The Ark of the Covenant. This box, this uh, container that even if we don't know much about it from the Bible, if we've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right, we at least got some kind of picture of the idea. This holy box that they would carry around and that sort of represented the presence of God becomes a sort of central character. And what's interesting to see is how that character, that box reveals the spiritual priorities and dynamics of God's people and even God's enemies And shows us, even today, some powerful things about how we can and should relate to the living God. So with that in mind, I invite you to read along with me as I read aloud uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the troops came to camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people went to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who's enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of this shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. And they said, a God has come into the camp. They said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians, every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be man, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated. And they fled and every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter. There fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli and Hophni and Phineas died. Well, the man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn, with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting in his seat by the road, watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. Eli heard the sound of the outcry, said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came, told Eli. Now, Eli was ninety eight years old his eyes were set so that he could not see and the man said to Eli I am he who has come from the battle I fled from the battle today he said how did it go my son he who brought the news answered and said israel has fled before the philistines and there has been a great defeat among your people your two sons also hophni and phineas are dead and the ark of the covenant has been captured As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now listen to these last three verses. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. When she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, For the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would teach us, that you would give us understanding, particularly today, to the sovereign way of your working and to the sometimes foolish way that we seek to uh, twist your arm, have you in our corner When, in fact, you are working out your plans perfectly. And, Lord, it's a humbling thing for us to understand and to recognize. Help us to apply these truths to our lives today. We pray pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the 1990s movie, Waking Ned Divine, tells the humorous... An interesting story of a fictional village in Ireland that named Tullymore, where the inhabitants of the town, a small town of about 50 people, seek to gain for themselves collectively the benefits of a lottery ticket that was not theirs. You see, Ned had passed away. In front of his TV, apparently due to the excitement of realizing he had the winning ticket for seven million pounds, a long time, a residence of the town, Jackie O'Shea. And Michael O'Sullivan hatch a plot then to lead an effort for the entire community to work together to dupe the outside lottery official who's coming in to verify Ned's ticket and Ned's identity. The challenge is that most people in the town didn't really know Ned, didn't really have a relationship with Ned or know much about him in order for them to impersonate Or have one impersonate him. Eventually, one woman, interestingly enough, in the town voices an objection to the morality of the whole falsehood that they've conjured up. There's some twists and turns at the end of the story. I don't I won't reveal in case you want to get the movie and watch it. But in the end, they get their collective share of the winnings across the whole town, the whole community. It's a fun, loving, humorous tale of this community trying to get Ned's winnings and have the idea of Ned's identity without actually having Ned or really knowing Ned in order to gain something that was not really theirs to control or have. In the case of their situation, it worked out successfully. In the case of our verses today, as we look at the Israelites, we see it doesn't work out so well. see, the Israelites are trying to get the power of what they see as their winning lottery ticket for these military victories. The Ark of the Covenant. If we've got it in our hand, surely God's going to work the way we want him to without actually having God's approval to cash in on it, and without really, it seems, seeking the heart of God. In their case, it ends in utter failure because they miss the fact that God is sovereign. God does what He wills. And He won't allow the symbols of His greatness To become like some sort of lucky rabbit's foot that we tuck in our pocket to have things go our way. He won't allow him to be twisted that way, even by people who seem to be demonstrating some form of faith in him. It's a challenging passage. You can follow along if you want to in the sermon notes section in the back of your worship guide. But I I, I would summarize the main idea. It's a it's a little bit of a dense uh, main idea, but I think it'll be helpful for us today that, that, that this is, is true. Because we often or frequently seek to manipulate the things of God to get his winnings, you might say, that we ought to repent and recognize that. God's only present with us by his sovereign good pleasure. Let's unpack that as we walk through these verses today. I suppose the first question for us is whether we believe this is true, whether we see this in our own lives. I think probably in some form or fashion, although the things of arcs of the covenant and wars between uh, tribes may seem distant from us. Between the Israelites and the Philistines, uh, we see the same thing playing out in our lives today, the same underlying motivation. We know that though we often solemnly profess, hey, we believe in God's sovereignty. We know that he's in control of things that really he's working out his plan. That when we encounter a little difficulty. Or maybe a lot of difficulty or we've got an opportunity we want to pursue and we need to have God on our side that we very quickly take the things of God and and grab it like a pile of pixie dust or hope that we can take hold of him like a sort of voodoo doll and get him to operate the way that we want him to operate. You get the uh, picture here in the verses, I think. The Israelites go out to fight this first battle. They have a defeat, which is significant. Four thousand people lost. They uh, they do have the foresight to say, hey, why did this happen? That's an upside. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, after that, they figure out, they come up with this idea, which again sounds pretty plausible. Ark of the Covenant has been involved in a lot of the victories of God's people in the past. Let's go get it. Let's bring it along. Super weapon, stealth bomber. Let's get that thing in our, in our camp and let's do battle. The Philistines even seem to go along with it. They recognize, hey, this is intimidating. They've got this, this super weapon. We need to be concerned. And then we're shocked. When we get to verse 10, aren't we? You know, we all know how stories are supposed to go. If you want to create some drama, you have sort of a little bit of a defeat there at the beginning. And then you go along and they figure out a solution or whatnot. And then the victory comes later. So we're expecting, verse 10, bam, it's going to be Israelite victory. No trouble at all. Sort of shocked when we read that they're not only defeated, but they're defeated by a much more substantial scale than they were before with the special super weapon from God. Not only that, but the thing's been captured. They've lost the the thing they were sort of hoping in and hoped that would bring about victory before them. Interestingly enough, in the midst of this, We see God carrying out his purposes. There's a story of what God's people are thinking they're doing and how they're going to do it. And then there's a story of what God's doing. And God's bringing this judgment. It's disturbing. It's sad to see what happens to Eli's family and Hophni and Phinehas. But that's playing out as his word has said, as he had declared it would happen. God's doing what he wills to do and how he will to do it. And then real intriguing to me. Real intriguing to me and maybe to you in those last couple of verses, we see once again in a book about kings, a book about men who control great areas and have great military might. We see a lot of the truth and understanding coming in a scenario with a a young woman and a baby, just as we saw in chapter one with Hannah and Samuel. Interesting, interesting verses and some things for us to take away. The first one, I think, is this. That God is sovereign over the wins and losses in our life, however we want to describe those. Whatever area of our life we are seeking some sort of growth or improvement or gain, God is sovereign over those things. It's interesting. It, it looks like they're off to a good start, doesn't it? Uh, verse one says the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Okay, we're reminded of what we talked about last week. They, they had this great benefit of God raising up and, and the word going out. But we remember, we talked at the end of our message time last week how it's so important that we receive it with faith, lay it up in our hearts, and practice God's word in our lives. It seems they're not quite doing that. They're not quite getting who God is. We see it right off the bat because something is, is really absent here, isn't it? If you've read other biblical stories about some of the battles and fights of the people of God entered into what usually comes to send them out into that battle. Some kind of message, right? Something that says, go uh, attack, do this thing, fight the battle for the Lord. We see that all throughout the scriptures up to this point. And so there's there's a silence here, but it, it's a very pregnant silence. It, it's meant to convey something. And that is between that first sentence About Samuel and the next sentence, it just abruptly says, now all Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. You get the picture? They just made up their mind. They're going to go do it. They're not really listening for a word from God for his direction in it, for his sovereign will. As I said before, we see wisely that the leaders of God's people do pause and they ask why? And in a sense they, they get part of it figured out They know they need some power But they're looking for that mojo If you will From the, the box itself That's something we can control We get the box And we do what we want With the box It's much more difficult to say You know what We're in your hands God The wins and losses will come from you We know we can't control it And boy we're not going to go out Unless you send us out So they're Sort of seeking God, but as we look at it more closely, they're kind of missing him. And in all of this, we see ultimately what their desire seems to be is to try to find a way that they can get the power of God, but have it in their lives for their benefit on their own terms. And guess what? God's not going to play that game. He's not going to play that game for us and he doesn't for them. And he doesn't play that game for us, we see it probably most prolifically in our own time, in the sort of health and wealth message, the prosperity gospel that, that seeps in. And I know I'll bring it up from, from time to time, but boy, it is true because it's influencing us whether we realize it or not. Now, here's the interesting thing about the, the message of sort of personal prosperity and gain through, through Christ. There's a true side to it, isn't it? Just like the Philistine or the Israelites trying to get the box, there's something true to what they're trying to do. They're trying to capitalize on something true power from God. There's great gain and benefit for you and me to know Christ. There's not only personal peace, but there's uh, you know, spiritual, eternal life that we have with God. And so we're right to seek our own gain in relationship with God. But it's a spiritual gain, right? It's not primarily material or even physical. He often blesses with those things, but, but he's not required to. And just like the Philistines and the Israelites battle here, we see the Israelites going for the things of God to just sort of twist his arm and get what they want. So often in that health and wealth prosperity mindset, we kind of want God in our corner. So he'll benefit us now, give the things we want now materially, physically. And the reality is what he's most concerned about is our spiritual growth. Our dependence, our vibrancy in him. Is that true for you today? I know it's true for me. So often I think about God as just a a, part of my mindset with God is that he's sort of just a lucky rabbit's foot. You know, I get him in my corner. He'll hopefully do what I want him to do in the way that I want it to be done. So we see God's people. Doing that and we see God, you know, dashing that whole concept pretty severely. The second thing we see, and it's uh, it's also a little sobering. This passage is a pretty serious one today. It's not your uh, (laughs) not your warm and fuzzy one. I got to acknowledge. We see that God's sovereign over the consequences that take place. Hey, if you look starting in verse 12, it goes on through and and this messenger comes and it's it's a dramatic thing to emphasize the consequences because it doesn't just tell us these things happen to Eli and his sons. This messenger runs in, he's got dirt on his head and he's been out from the battlefield and he's flying into town and they're hearing about it. And Eli asks about it and he falls over and even dies in the midst of hearing this news. The consequences are Coming. It's interesting. If you want to flip over to Psalm 78, and I didn't, uh, I didn't discover this. This was a commentary. It really helped me to to see this. That is interesting. This Psalm 78. Is one of those ones that we like to do related to children's ministry in the church or our outreach. I think when we were doing the uh, capital campaign earlier last year for the land, we talked about this verse in our ministry to reach out to the kids in our midst, because in the beginning of Psalm 78, it says, hey, we'll tell the uh, we will not hide the praiseworthy deeds of God from the children, but we'll tell it to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and of his might, the wonders that he's done. But but look, later on in Psalm 78, it's a long one. Look in verse 56. It's interesting. It's gone through uh, section by section a lot of the foibles and failings of the people of Israel in the wilderness and along their pathway. And it shows how God is correcting them. It's, it's kind of about his corrective will here. And then it comes down into verse 56 and and listen to these words. It's a description of the very things we're reading about today in 1 Samuel. It says in verse 56, Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God. Look, look at how all the people are involved in this. Not just Hophni and Phinehas. Not just the elders who were trying to get the box. Everybody's part of it. They tested and rebelled against the Most High God. Did not keep His testimonies. But turned away, acted treacherously like their fathers. They and they twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger, in the high places moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and utterly rejected Israel. Then listen to verse six, sixty. He forsake his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where his dwelt, he, he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of his foe. There's more to it there, but do you see this picture? It's not just Hophni and Phineas. That are dealing with consequences here. It's, it's God's people in general. It's a mindset that's kind of gotten in among all of them. And, and here's what's interesting about it. God, The consequences that God dishes out sovereignly, they're both really comforting and really disturbing. It can be either one of those things and sometimes both. Here's how they're comforting. We're all watching the news reports. We know, and I prayed about it earlier, there's this group ISIS and there's lots of other things going on in the world that are scary. This isn't the only thing. But let's take that for an example. Okay, there's this weird thing that we do as Christians that we're called to do because of the gospel. We pray for our enemies and we wish for them to come to salvation in Christ. That's kind of those two things together. And at the same time. We pray along with the psalmist, the psalmist prays this way for justice and judgment to to be done, for evil to be stopped and restrained in this world. So we pray for somebody to do something about these folks in ISIS and we pray for them to come to know Christ. And and here's the interesting thing. We can trust in the midst of that, that that God's working out his plan. So it's comforting to know that folks that are getting away with things that are evil in this world, are not going to get away with it. Uh, if, if nothing else, ultimately, God's going to judge eternally of those things. And frequently, God brings about his judging work in this world. So we we see that in a comforting kind of way. Uh, on the flip side, it's a little bit disturbing to us to see that God works this way and works out his sovereign consequences because um, perhaps you're here today. And you're in a situation where you're kind of exploring the things of Christ. You have not yet received Christ or you have kind of decidedly said, I don't believe the things of Christ. You know, as I say often, we're very glad that you're coming to our worship time, that you're hearing the word of God. At the same time, I'd be remiss if I didn't communicate to you that there's consequences of not surrendering ourselves to God now. Now, let's get it straight. The receiving Christ is not just a, a fire insurance or a get out of jail free card, a way to get out of those consequences we face. But nevertheless, and, and of course, we ought to seek Christ because we love him, because we know what he's done for us. But nevertheless, if we don't surrender our lives to Christ, the scriptures say there's consequences that are going to come. God is sovereignly going to dish those things out. And and if it doesn't maybe catch up with us in this life He tells us it'll catch up with us in the form of eternal separation from him uh, in the next life. So that's disturbing. It's also a little bit disturbing that, you know, maybe targets some of us here. It's a little bit disturbing for all of us here who maybe have surrendered our life to Christ. We say, yeah, I want to know Christ. I'm walking with him. I've realized I need mercy and forgiveness and grace in him for my sins. Because we remember, if we know our Bible, that the scriptures say God Disciplines those that he loves as children that God's even bringing into our life consequences at various places to help redirect us to him, that he's sovereignly dishing that out. So sometimes we hope to to have things work out in our way and we want to get a victory and a win this way and come to find out God tears some of that apart. And part of what he's doing there most every time is giving us an opportunity to delight more in him, to look more Him for our hope. Do you believe that today? That God is really in our lives, he's sovereignly working out the things of his consequences, even even for you and me as believers, as believers, he does it in love. We're not condemned through that. He does it for our good and for our benefit But we can't twist him out of it. We can't manipulate him to do some other plan. He's going to work his plan out. We're at his bidding and his working. Last thing we see in these verses. Is that uh, is that God's sovereignty, this idea we're talking about today over wins and losses, the fact that he brings about his consequences, however he wills. This is stuff that that we rarely get. Okay, so if we're struggling to digest it or believe it or put it into practice, we're not alone. Everybody we're reading about in this chapter doesn't seem to quite get it. Even the Philistines, who are the enemies, they think the, the box is there. They're going to they're going to put a whooping on us and they kind of gear it up and maybe fight even harder because of that. The uh, leaders, the elders kind of think that that's what's going on and the people go along with it. What is interesting to me again as we're walking through Samuel, this book about kings, about those who are going to control great spans of, of, of area, uh, who are kind of mighty warriors, uh, particularly, you know, there's men, there's a focus on these men, these leaders, that once again, in verses 19 through 22, we have already in just a couple few chapters of 1 Samuel that we've looked at, a, a woman and a child speaking a message to us that, that nobody else seems to really quite be grasping. Okay, why, why else is this in here? This is kind of an unusual thing to put in there about this woman giving birth. And so we know the judgment is pouring out on the, the, the family of Eli there. And so she doesn't even survive the birth. But, you know, we know the name Ichabod from the you know story and Ichabod Crane and so forth. But probably most of us didn't know what it meant. It means the glory's gone out. Isn't it interesting that this... This woman who's just in this pain of childbirth. She's about to to uh, die, pass away. She utters these words that really are profound. And that is, hey, God's decided the way he's going to have this play out. He's going to let his glory go out for a time. That's what he decided to do. That's his plan. And we are, of course, invited to look at that and say, wow, this is an invitation trust in God, let's think about it relationally. And we're coming into the, the end of our time here in God's word. You know, think about somebody who's close to you. Spouse, good friend, sibling, a co-worker, somebody like that, that you know well and you've kind of known for a while. You know, you you have an ongoing relationship with them to the degree that you feel like you could probably if you if you drew up a situation, a social situation or some other interaction, you feel like you could probably predict almost 100 percent how that person is going to, to act. Right. What they're going to do, how they're going to respond, what actions they'll take, what words they'll say. You ever been in a situation like that where all of a sudden somebody, you know, real well and you feel like you're close to and you thought you knew them does something that you didn't expect at all. It's out of your box. It's not what you're thinking they would do. It's a little bit upsetting, isn't it? It's frustrating, kind of disappointing. Like, wow, I I thought I knew you. I thought I knew the way, you know, you roll, what you do, especially if you're close to the person. That's, I think, what's. Going on for God's people here and in a sense for us in our relationship with God, sometimes, you know, we think we we got what he's doing and got our picture of how he's going to work. And maybe it seems like he's done it that way a lot of times before, too. And then he surprises us. And we are reminded that he's not in our little box. He's not there just to kind of do what we think he should do. But in fact, he's doing what he sovereignly as God of the universe decides to do. And it takes some adjustment, doesn't it? It's not an easy thing to grasp or to receive. As we close, I'm reminded with all of this uh, in mind, and I'm sure I've I've shared this uh, illustration and story before up here a time or two. I like to go back to my C.S. Lewis. It's OK. Every, you know, we got all kinds of movies for C.S. Lewis. I shouldn't feel too bad about going back to C.S. Lewis. Our whole country likes to watch his uh, stories. And th- this one is actually from The Silver Chair. And it's this encounter that uh, a young girl, Jill, in this case, not Lucy or Susan, but Jill, is having with this lion Aslan. And Jill is thirsty. She needs something To drink and she knows it and she encounters Aslan, the lion, Christ figure, the God figure in the story, uh, just to the other side of a stream in the woods. And this interaction transpires, and I think it will have some obvious application for each one of us. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at the lion's motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to go aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? Said Jill, I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors. Cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say it as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I I daren't come and drink, said Jill. And you'll die of thirst, said the lion. "Oh, Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go look somewhere for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are loving and that you are sovereign. We have great difficulty. Recognizing and embracing and coming to love the fact that you are working out your plans and purposes in a way that's different from what we often want. Father, we uh, try to manipulate and twist and get you to be in our corner for what we want. Uh, We really uh, brace and brash against the consequences that sometimes come in our lives when we Try to steer against you instead of walking with you. And, Lord, we uh, find that we rarely get, at least as we're going through the things of life, sometimes in hindsight, but rarely as we're going through the times of life, do we see and rightly seek your will and your purposes. Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in the fact that you are that delicious stream which offers all that we need and yet coming close to it, getting what we need involves coming close to you. A God who sometimes feels dangerous to us, doesn't always feel as comforting as we would like, sometimes even disturbs us. Lord, help us to draw close to you as you are and not as we want you to be. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.